Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, April 16th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers series. Historian Harold Holter delves into the life of Abraham Lincoln. And now, enjoy the podcast. Well, good evening. Uh, wonderful to see you. And it's an honor, really, to represent Abraham Lincoln in this great uh, presidential lecture series that the New York Historical Society has mounted. And I've examined, as some of you in the audience may know, um, examined Lincoln from many different angles. Um, among others, emancipator, writer, military commander, and military mastermind, political mastermind. I thought it was time for a different approach. In fact, when I came in to do my sound check this evening, one of the wonderful docents from the Historical Society said, not accusingly, but, you know, firmly, are you doing something new tonight? <laughs> and I said, yes, it's new. She said, is it new for you as well as us? I said, yeah, it sort of is. So now I'm revved up to do this. Um, anyway, as you may know, it's called Abraham Lincoln Communicator in chief. And it's in no small way inspired by the fact, I will admit, that we are living in the era of a president who, politics aside, and maybe above all, is an effective communicator in chief who uses the latest and highest technologies to get there first with the most, morning after morning, every morning. Now, that aside, I am going to focus, I promise, on the 16th president, not the 45th. But I will maintain, and I do maintain, that the most effective presidents throughout history tend to be the ones who master new communications technologies, even if they risk charges of impropriety specifically for that kind of experimentation. Woodrow Wilson, for hosting the first press conferences, considered inelegant. Franklin Roosevelt for talking to the people on radio. Kennedy for making use of television. Clinton and Obama for having Facebook accounts and speaking out on the internet. And Donald Trump on Twitter just added to the list. When such mastery is lacking, think Alfred M. Landon's sandpaper voice on radio, Nixon sweating on TV, even if he was later redeemed only to fall again, and Hillary Clinton and her problems mastering emails in such a way that everybody would be satisfied. There are a few second chances or second acts if a leader fails to adapt to and utilize new communications technologies. And that's what I want to emphasize with Lincoln. And I think we get to the nub of the matter with a quote that he once uh, a, a line he once gave in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which I will quote, public sentiment is everything. With public sentiment, 
nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. Now listen to the end of this quote. Consequently, he who molds public sentiment goes deeper than he who enacts statutes or pronounces decisions. Deeper. Now that's a kind of a breathtaking philosophy when you think of it from a man who did distinguish, even immortalize himself by pronouncing decisions, like his commitment to preserving the Union, and by enacting statutes with Congress and by himself, like the executive order we know today as the Emancipation Proclamation. But Lincoln firmly believed that such accomplishments did not speak for themselves. They had to be articulated. They had to be sold to the public, promoted, marketed, as we would say today, as rapidly and effectively as possible. So Lincoln comes of age, fortunately for him, at the same time that technology transforms the media as it was then, not known, but as we know it. Um, Going back to the beginning of his life, what distinguishes him is an early love for reading. And he reads everything he can get his hands on, and people have tended to romanticize Aesop's fables and the Bible and Shakespeare and all of the things he got his hands on early. But his stepmother testified that even as a young teenager, he read newspapers voraciously whenever they could be had from cover to cover as ardently as he read poetry and scripture. They made a big impact on him. They opened up the wider world and they introduced him to politics because the newspapers that his father brought into the house or cabin were pro-Whig, anti-Jackson, anti-Democratic newspapers. And all newspapers of the period on into Lincoln's time and the end of the 19th century were openly Democratic papers or Whig, later Republican papers. And that's important to remember. When he goes off on his own, his first town on his own, New Salem, Illinois, you probably have heard he becomes a storekeeper and he um, meets Ann Rutledge, his allegedly one and only love. Now, all that is true to a degree, but he also becomes the local agent for the Whig newspaper published in the state capitol. So he begins selling newspapers. Then he begins writing anonymous editorials, anti-Andrew Jackson editorials, um, so uh, in such a partisan manner that the Democratic papers begin to attack him. First attack against Lincoln comes in this period. They say he's guilty not only of swallowing dirt, but of shoveling it. <laughs> Sounds like a tweet, right? I mean, it is very tough. Um, He becomes the postmaster of New Salem, ironically appointed by the Jackson administration. Lincoln says it's because nobody else wanted the job. It's only a couple of dollars a month. And what happens there? Well, newspapers are mailed by subscription to readers in New Salem. And the readers who come to the post office to pick them up because there's no, you know, cabin-to-cabin delivery in those days, begin to notice that their newspapers are sort of carelessly refolded. You know, years later, they say, we take immense pride in the fact that we allowed young Abraham Lincoln to read our newspapers first. I'm sure they complained about it at the time. But again, Lincoln introduced to these subscription newspapers that are coming into town from the East 
to people who've left the East and migrated to Illinois. He tries to master the art of communicating through newspapers in his first run for elective office, the state legislature in Illinois. He's not enormously successful because he spends much of the campaign in the state militia fighting an Indian war. So he finds out that you have to stay on it. You have to stay in the campaign. You have to speak directly to the people. And you can't relinquish the constant barrage of information that you communicate uh, through the press. Keep in mind also, although you might not know it from the photograph at the left that I see some of you are looking at, and it's better to look at that than to look at me, it's okay, that Lincoln also mastered the proliferation and utilization of his own image. Um, He is not ashamed of being the tallest guy in town. One of the reasons he used a stovepipe hat was to be even taller than six foot four. He wound up seven foot four outdoors. He's identifiable. He is looks like the log trees and rails that he splits. He is a rough-hewn prairie type. And although there are no photographs in this period I'm talking about, no photography to speak of, He will make himself available, homely as he joked he was, to photographers, painters, eventually sculptors, as he moves on in his career. Back to print. He makes sure in his second run for office that his speeches, his statements, are printed in the Whig newspapers. Later, as a lawyer, wherever he travels in central Illinois, he makes absolutely certain to visit newspaper editors, wherever they may be. He knocks at their doors. Some of them remember that they were annoyed because they were busy, you know, with their sleeves rolled up and ink covering their hands. They eventually made time for him. They were astonished at how much he knew about their localities. Later, he will have these guys in his Rolodex, whatever the analog of a Rolodex was in 1850. He knew them. He was able to call on them for support. So here's a first example of his brilliance at communication. He's collecting the names of influential Whig editors. In all this time, by the way, he has no press secretary. He has no secretary. One of the reasons we have no um, records, no handwritten records of any of Lincoln's pre-presidential speeches, which is sort of a shame archivally, is that they were only use, of use to him as a script and then as a manuscript he would deliver to the newspapers. Where typesetters, remember, does anybody remember typesetters? I guess so. Would set the prints, the speeches in hot type, print them for mass readership, again, mastering communications, and then Lincoln was no longer interested in them as relics. So as we move into the 1840s and 1850s, The technology is changing as Lincoln is maturing and increasing in sophistication. The introduction of the steam press to replace the old screw press where you had to grind down a large metal clamp and then unscrew it and you'd have one sheet of a newspaper. Steam presses made it possible to print tens of thousands of copies of a newspaper overnight, eventually hundreds of thousands. The telegraph, capable of transmitting news really quickly, Steamboats, yes, they played a role too because they began competing in New York Harbor 
to rush out in advance of ocean liners docking so they could get European newspapers, take them to their own office, and print foreign news. That was the way we did foreign news. And then eventually the transatlantic cable for a while, another innovation. Railroads, obviously, to speed domestic news all over the country. In that atmosphere, weekly newspapers become semi-weekly and eventually daily papers. The alliance between politics and the press never ends. Lincoln is making his case for the rest of his career to Republican, Whig then Republican newspapers. There are no Democratic editors he likes or tolerates or speaks to or does anything but denigrate and try to limit, and we'll get to that later. Um, he also begins um, using something that doesn't have the name I'm going to ascribe to it now, but it could easily fit into that category, and it'll become more so later, and that is fake news. Um, that wasn't invented in uh, 2016. Uh, George Washington left, didn't run for a third term because he believed fake news was wounding his feelings and upsetting his rep, destroying confidence that people had in him. Thomas Jefferson, whatever else you may say about him, was a purveyor of fake news. Very quickly, because I love this story. He hired a reprobate journalist named James Callender to dig up dirt on Alexander Hamilton's infidelities. And then Callender said to Jefferson, or communicated to Jefferson, I've done my deed, Hamilton is ruined, not knowing there would be a musical to redeem his reputation, of course. <laughs> Hamilton is ruined. I want to be postmaster of Richmond in reward, as a reward. And Jefferson said, why would I make a person like you postmaster of Richmond? You're disgusting. Look what you did to Hamilton. <laughs> what did Callender do? He said, I'm going to dig up some dirt. Now, this is not fake news, but this is tough press stuff. He dug up the Sally Hemings story and published it in Jefferson's lifetime in Hamilton's lifetime. Now, Lincoln was a modern master at this, too. He will, he will, from time to time, issue stories that have no basis in reality or limited basis and a partisan slant. And it's part of a culture, and I think we repeat the same complaint today. Newspapers, as television and the web do today, bring people together. And in those days, the press did so as never before but they also tend to drive people apart. But here's a quick story about how newspapers bring people together in Lincoln's era. Abraham Lincoln had a romance with the Belle of Springfield, Mary Todd. They broke up before the wedding day. They were reunited because of their common love for newspapers. They courted a second time in the, in the home of the local Whig editor. They probably, Abe and Mary, began writing a series of articles together, unsigned, actually attributed to um, someone named Aunt Rebecca, but it was Lincoln and Mary, attacking local Democrats. Well, one local Democrat, an Irish-American named James Shields, was not amused, was he was you know, criticized uh, for being an Irish-American, for having a heavy brogue, for drinking, and for all of the cliched things you might advance. Shields went to the local newspaper and said, who wrote these articles? And Lincoln said, give my name, because I can't let Mary Todd bear the brunt of the criticism. So the editor said it was Lincoln. Shields challenged Lincoln to a duel. 
speaking of the Hamilton Echo, they went off to an island in the Mississippi where dueling was legal. Fortunately for Lincoln, because Shields later became a Civil War general, he was no slouch. Lincoln, as the, as the challenged party, got the choice of weapons. He chose broadswords and then began practicing with his long arms shearing off the branches of trees. So that's when Shields said in his brogue, no doubt, maybe we should make peace and not do this duel. Lincoln never spoke about it again, but it is a completely true story and at least one example of newspapers bringing people together. I'm going to skip over Lincoln in Congress because he did a terrible job of getting the press to pay attention when he was in Congress. He even was in Congress with the editor of the New York Tribune, Horace Greeley, appointed uh, to fill a congressional seat from New York City. Those two should have gotten along, and they never did. Greeley, was an, he, he functioned as the editor while he was a member of Congress, but he wasn't impressed by Lincoln, and Lincoln could not get him to pay attention. He serves only one term in Congress, does Lincoln, and he returns in somewhat of a political wilderness that lasts for about five years, only comes roaring back to attention when Stephen Douglas, the Democratic senator from Illinois, introduces the Kansas-Nebraska Act, under which white settlers in the Western territories could vote yes or no on whether to incorporate slavery in their state constitutions. Suddenly, Lincoln has an inspiration, and he returns understanding that this time he can't be the slouch he was in Congress. He's got to get the press on his side. In one of his first speeches in this new era of his political life, he goes to make a major speech in Chicago. And after it's over, after three hours of speech making, he walks off to the local photographer. And that is when he had the photograph on the left made. In 1854, by a photographer named Polycarpus von Scheidau. Just love that name, so I have to repeat it. He, he, maybe he designed the bow tie as well. He, but um, and he, what is he doing? He's holding a newspaper. It was a German paper. Later, the Chicago Tribune put its masthead on a retouched version. So Lincoln is, you know, in those days, there were photographs called occupational photographs. You would see a blacksmith posing with an anvil, a fireman posing with an axe and a helmet. This is an occupational This is Abraham Lincoln posing with the essential tool of his profession, a newspaper. Well, in 1858, he challenges the aforementioned Douglas for the United States Senate. I think you all know what happened, the transformational Lincoln-Douglas debates. But there's a communication story attached to that. Yes, they spoke to large crowds. Yes, they attracted a a lot of press attention that went national. But there was something else involved. Abraham Lincoln approved of, and I have to say this was Douglas's camp's idea, um, stenographers. There had never been political stenographers recording events as they happened. It was a first. It had just begun the art of stenography to be introduced in courtrooms in Chicago. They, of course, had a Republican stenographer and a Democratic stenographer hired by the Republican paper of Chicago, the Democratic paper of Chicago. And there was constant controversy about whose transcripts were were most accurate. 
One, the Democratic paper wrote, Republicans have a candidate for the Senate of whose bad rhetoric and horrible jargon they are ashamed, upon which before they would publish it, they called a council of literary men to discuss, reconstruct, and rewrite. Um, Lincoln won this battle of communications too. He lost the election. He lost the battle. How does he win the war? Sort of quaintly, when you think about modern communications, he buys a big scrapbook, and he orders three copies of the Republican transcripts in the, as they appeared in the press and three of the Democratic. He pastes them in himself, and he then shops the result to a publisher. Takes him a while to find one, but when the book is taken on and published, Lincoln has used his transcripts of his speeches, so they're edited by Republican editors, and Douglas, the Democrats of Douglas's. The result is that as both men aspire to the presidency in 1860, Lincoln has had the last word. His version is out there. And by the way, it becomes perhaps the second biggest bestseller of the 19th century behind Uncle Tom's Cabin. That's a man who understands the power of communications. I have to briefly remember his visit to New York uh, a year and a half later. He comes to Cooper Union to make perhaps the most important speech of his run-up to the presidency, make sure he's photographed here, a photograph that is used throughout the coming campaign, gives his great speech in Cooper Union. But more importantly, after all the celebrations are over and he goes to other speeches, he goes to a party that night in his honor, he goes to the offices of the New York Tribune with the aforementioned indifferent Horace Greeley in charge. And he proofreads every word of the speech. And then he arranges for the tri- to make sure it's perfect. And then he makes sure that the Tribune publishes a pamphlet version. He speaks to 1,500 people. The next morning, 150,000 people read the speech in the morning and afternoon papers in New York alone. And it's just the beginning. Um, By the time the convention meets in Chicago, just a few months later, Lincoln is lurking as an irresistible second choice for the presidency. And when New York's favorite son fails to win the nomination, Lincoln becomes the nominee. And then he introduces a new way of harnessing communications and controlling the message. And this is something he'll do from time to time during his presidency. It's the mastery of silence. Lincoln does not give a single speech from the time he goes home from Cooper Union until he begins his inaugural journey one year later. No speeches at the convention, no campaign speeches, how many people would like to... Well, we can't, um, we can't vote on whether we should do that. Um, but that, in a way, prevents people from getting... And prevents him from speaking out on doctrinal issues. What does he say when people ask what he believes in? Read the Lincoln-Douglas debates. I published it. That's all I need to say about arresting the spread of slavery in the United States. The art of silence is part of the art of communications mastery. And Lincoln, this great orator, kept his silence for 12 long months. Meanwhile, an image transformation, of course. He goes from that guy to that guy. 
The first Republican president will be the first bearded president as well. And as he leaves Springfield for his inaugural in February 1861, again, he dominates press coverage by going from silent Lincoln to prolix Lincoln. He makes 100 speeches in about 11 or 12 days. Now, most of them are banal, anodyne speeches. This is my wife, Mary, and here's me. Now you see the long and the short of it. That's the kind of speech he gave. Um, So that's the pre-presidential Lincoln. Um, Mastery of communications by befriending newspaper editors, endorsing stenography, collecting clips, as quaint as that may seem, brilliantly managing his debut in New York, buying um, buying his own newspaper at one point to control the message to German-American voters, using silence as effectively as news and using his new image to project strength, and then breaking his silence. Now, once he becomes commander-in-chief, I would suggest that he really becomes communicator-in-chief in seven different ways. He continues to control the party press. Now he's just not hanging out at their offices and befriending the editors. He's giving editors jobs in return for loyalty. That's one way a master communicator of that era controls the message. Editors become postmasters, ambassadors, or the equivalent of ambassadors. Uh, Agents, uh, Indian agents, quartermasters, um, collectors of the Port of New York, which was the highest paying job in the United States government, more than the president. That's one way. Keep them in line by paying them, legally. Two is outright censorship, and we'll get to that in a minute. Three, an entirely new form of communications, what we call now public letters, going past the editors and speaking directly to the people in the same way that communicators do today. Um, Image making, posing more than ever for photographs and for artists and sculptors. I mentioned tossing in fake news every once in a while. And then finally, at the end of the Civil War, erasing the final gulf between politics and the press to sort of become the chief war correspondent of the United States and report directly to the people on the end of the war through the telegraph, something that's been neglected. Let's talk for a minute about the censorship, because we have to acknowledge that that's about the tightest control that you can exert. And Lincoln used censorship to control the press. Let me tell you a story. Henry Raymond, the editor of the New York Times, decides to cover the first battle of the war himself at Bull Run because everyone believes it'll be the battle that ends the Civil War once the Union overwhelms these ragtag Confederates. He goes to the battle. The Union does really well in the morning. Raymond has a horse and a messenger to deliver the story to Washington about an hour away by horseback. And he writes, Union winning glorious victory, Rebellion soon to end, sends off the horse. And then a little later in the afternoon, the Confederates inconveniently overwhelm the Union. So Raymond decides, I've got to write a new story, but he doesn't have a messenger. He has to walk all the way to Washington with the defeated soldiers. And then he goes breathlessly, filthy, sweaty, this is July, to the telegraph office and presents the new story, humiliating defeat for the Union, war to be prolonged indefinitely. I'm just 
I'm making that up, but that's about what it said. And the telegraph operator said, well, this is a very disobliging story. I'm not sending that over the wires. And Raymond said, well, what do you mean? I'm the New York Times. And they said, well, we, the, the, the military is taking control of the, of the telegraph. And that was the beginning. Raymond had to take a train to New York. It took two, if you just read the New York Times, the paper of record then as now, you didn't know the Union had won the battle for two more days because Raymond had to take the Acela to New York to get the, uh, to get the story across. Now, that was just the beginning. In, I'll give you, in all the border states where Lincoln feared that secession could multiply, and caused the Union to really split irrevocably apart. They imposed a rigid military censorship. So you have stories of the young Ulysses S. Grant reporting to his superior officers that he's carrying a printing press off and with the editor in chains. You have newspapers in Philadelphia being closed down by the army because they are supportive of secession and against resisting the the rebels. My favorite story is in Baltimore. Now, Maryland was a state that was teetering toward secession. And the editor of a paper called the Baltimore Exchange wrote that the Union is cruel and uh, godless and the Confederacy is good and soulful. Well, the Union marched, the Army marched in, sent him to Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor. His name was Francis Key Howard. Yes, he was the grandson of the man who had written the national anthem because he saw a flag at Fort, at Fort McHenry. He was the grandson of Francis Scott Key. No one on the, in the Republican press objected to this kind of censorship. The New York Times wrote, no right of the press should shield it from the penalty of a crime against society. Every newspaper that approved of secession should be regarded as the accomplices of treason. Now, historians have been arguing about whether Lincoln went overboard or not. And in retrospect, it's easy to say he went overboard. He never instituted a national censorship policy, although he did suspend the writ of habeas corpus, which made it impossible for editors to appeal shutdowns and imprisonment. But I will just leave it at this for that part of the story. Chilling dissent is an example of communications genius, even if you do it with the hard hand of war. Now, Congress did hold hearings into censorship. This might have changed everything. They held hearings and there was testimony about how uh, reports were being censored. Sometimes great communicators need luck as well as an iron fist. And Lincoln had luck in the most bizarre way. His first annual message to Congress around that same time leaked. Yes, there were leaks then too. Leaked to the press, and the committee tried to investigate. How did this happen? It's unheard of. It never gets reported the morning of the annual message, the equivalent of the State of the Union message. Well, the argument was that the White House gardener had snuck up to the library and memorized the speech. (laughs) This is like an 8,000-word speech, and then transmitted it to the New York Herald. Hard to believe. But do you know what the real story was? Our friend Mary, who had written those terrible stories about James Shields, the Irishman from Springfield, she apparently, and it hurts me to say it, she apparently leaked it to the New York Herald 
maybe in return for financial compensation. And when Congress found that out, they, and by the way, their son at the time was suffering a, a fatal illness that would kill him a few weeks later. They decided to give Lincoln a pass. And the New York Herald was exonerated. They were a Democratic paper. Why did Mary leak to the New York Herald? Because they were rich and maybe they could pay. But Lincoln also needed that Democratic paper to at least support the Union war effort. It was an episode that changed the way people resisted censorship. And again, it's a terrible story for the Lincoln family because it sort of implies dishonesty and certainly includes the death of a child. But it spared Lincoln fortuitously from further inquiry. So how did Lincoln use fake news? He used it around the Emancipation Proclamation. Today is the anniversary of D.C. emancipation. It's why we all have a tax day reprieve. It's still celebrated as a major holiday in Washington, D.C. That was congressional legislation. Um, There's agitation now for Lincoln to order the freeing of the slaves in Confederate territories. And he begins to write just such a document. Then his old nemesis, Horace Greeley, writes an editorial in the New York Tribune saying that the president is strangely and disastrously remiss in not issuing the proclamation immediately. Lincoln could have said, Horace, old friend, I'm writing it. Give me a pass here. Give me a little time. I'm waiting for a union victory. But he didn't. He wrote a letter saying, my paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union and not either to preserve or destroy slavery. What I do about slavery, I do to preserve the Union. What I forbear, I forbear to save the Union. Then to really stick it to Greeley, he not only puts it in the mail, he releases it to a rival newspaper on a Saturday, knowing that Greeley doesn't publish on Sunday. It's all very calculated. He, he was disingenuous. He had written the proclamation, and he didn't say that. Then he has a delegation of free African-Americans come to the White House. The good news is it's the first such delegation ever to see a president of the United States. The bad news is he lectured them about being the cause of the rebellion. And he said to them, you know, it is better for us to be separated. Go where the ban is not upon you. I have a plan for relocation in the Caribbean and in Africa. Don't answer now. The person standing next to Lincoln while he made this incredible pronouncement was an AP stenographer. So the story is out the next day. He says nothing about the proclamation. Implicitly withheld news is fake news. And then a few days later, a delegation of religious leaders from Chicago comes. And again, for the record, Lincoln says, what good would a proclamation for me do? It would be like the Pope's bull against the comet. In other words, I have no force against an institution that I can't control. Those Chicago ministers headed back to Chicago and published this story. It appeared the same day as the news that the Emancipation Proclamation had been issued. So there's a lot of fake news involved. Why did he do it? I think he was petrified that white America would not support the changing of the aims of the war from union to slavery. He was scared that if he lost white America in the North, 
he would lose the union altogether. And he operated in such a way as to assure the public in advance that he had no philanthropic interest in people of color. They can leave. My, my goal is to save the union and all sorts of disingenuous half-truths. And the fact is that he never acted on the colonization plan he articulated to that delegation. He never spent the congressional appropriation that was allocated to put it into effect. It was all news management. Well, there are so many more stories. I'll just tell you a few. Um, He began responding to critics by writing long letters, as he had done to Greeley, and publishing them in the press. And what did that accomplish? It bypassed editors. It bypassed reporters. It was a direct communication of the president to the people. And it was breathtakingly new at the time. He responded to Mayor Erastus Corning of Albany, actually future Mayor Erastus Corning of Albany, who complained about his um, suspension of free press. And he issued the letter to the press, not just to Corning. He wrote an extraordinary speech to be delivered in Springfield, his old hometown. And when he didn't go, he released it to the press to tamp down his hometown resistance to the recruitment of African-Americans for the army. He had this great line. Um, Westerners should drop resistance to black recruitment, he said, because the time will come, and I quote, when there will be some black men who can remember that with silent tongue and clenched teeth and steady eye and well-poised bayonet, they have helped mankind onto this great consummation, while I fear there will be some white ones, unable to forget that with malignant heart and deceitful speech, they have strove to hinder it. Great writing. And again, released directly to the press. Um, it's not that Lincoln didn't like journalists, though he didn't. Um, most, I mean, most presidents come to the point where they don't like journalists. Lincoln once, a story I used in my book, I love this story. He was once... Um, meeting a delegation or I think maybe it was just a reception in the White House and he overheard uh, the wife of his secretary of the Navy say to someone else, don't you think we should rely on the loyal press? And Lincoln said, that's it exactly about the press. First they lie and then they rely. Um. By 1864, the year he decided to try to become the first president since Andrew Jackson to seek a second term, his mastery and control of the press was almost absolute. So when Horace Greeley of the New York Tribune, and you see he's not holding the New York Tribune here in his presidency, he's holding the Washington Chronicle. When Greeley tries to deny him the nomination, get someone else to run as a third-party candidate. Lincoln has enough control not to censor him, but to bypass him. Henry Raymond of the New York Times becomes his greatest advocate in that re-election year. Let me just tell you what he did in one year. He was chairman of the Republican National Committee. He was a Republican candidate for Congress. 
he wrote a campaign biography of Lincoln. Now, that's the equivalent of being David Axelrod in addition to all those other things. And he was editor of the New York Times. There was no conflict in that. It was a party newspaper. But it's an enormous undertaking of being that closely allied with Lincoln. Horace Greeley almost had the last word. He said that he had discovered that there were Confederate emissaries who were willing to discuss a ceasefire. And he published it to Lincoln's mortification. Lincoln had no choice but to allow Greeley to go up to Niagara Falls to have a conference with these would-be commissioners who, in fact, were not authorized by anyone. Lincoln outsmarted him by sending his private secretary, John Hay, up to Canada with a message saying, in order for peace to be restored, two things, complete restoration and recognition of the federal authority and my Emancipation Proclamation cannot be revoked. That broke up the so-called peace talks and ended forever Lincoln's relationship with Horace Greeley, who was still the most influential newspaper man in the country and a lifelong opponent of slavery who ducked at the last minute. And Lincoln held out for the emancipation when the voters were clamoring for peace, were clamoring for an end to bloodshed. One other bit of mastery, uh, if you've seen the movie Lincoln, you know that in this same period, and especially after he wins the election, Lincoln also masterminds the House passage of a resolution to advance the 13th Amendment to the states for ratification. And he does it again, I hate to say it, with a little bit of fake news. And if you remember the scene in the movie, the members of Congress are about to vote when word comes that another series of Confederate peace emissaries, but this time a legitimate delegation, was en route to Washington to ask for peace. And again, you can imagine after the 700,000 deaths how hungry Americans were to end the bloodshed, especially when it seemed so imminent that the hostilities would cease. Congress stops the debate. The Democrats who are opposed to the amendment demand to know whether, in fact, there's a peace delegation coming to Washington. And Lincoln issues to Congress and to the press a famous letter in which he says, so far as I know, there are no peace commissioners in Washington or about to arrive. Guess what? He had ordered the commissioners to, to be stopped in their tracks at Hampton Roads, Virginia, as soon as he issued this denial, not very convincing, the amendment was passed, the resolution was passed, Lincoln rushed off to Hampton Roads for the conference and there reiterated that reunion could only occur if emancipation was accepted and the Union authority restored. On this final, in this final couple of months, Lincoln did his final mastery conducted his final acts of press mastery. He began sending a series of telegrams um, back to Washington, reporting on the activities of the army, which he was by then accompanying in Virginia. Now, he never said mission accomplished, but he did say, for example, April 3rd, 1865, 
We're almost at the anniversary of that. This morning, General Grant reports that Petersburg was evacuated, and he is confident Richmond also is. He is pushing forward to cut off, if possible, the retreating army. I start toward him in a few minutes. These things were all published on the front page of every newspaper in the North. They didn't need war correspondence because he had become the correspondent in chief at this point, completely controlling the message of the good news of the ending at last of the Civil War. Now, Lincoln wasn't perfect at this because, frankly, he didn't pay all his attention um, toward the press. He had lots of other things on his mind. For example, there was not one of his friendly reporters with him when he did go to Richmond the following morning, April 4th, 1865. There were a couple of journalists on the scene to record the extraordinary welcome he received there from the African-American population of the city. I guess he should have listened to the correspondent who urged him to declare Good Friday, 1865, as a day of national prayer and fasting, um, as you all know, um, because the anniversary was Saturday, he preferred to celebrate and, in his case, go to the theater. In essence, by missing that press opportunity for one final act of contrition, he made possible the greatest press story of the entire 19th century, the elevation of a man into a kind of secular sainthood, the transfiguration of a great communicator into something of a prophet. He had indeed become the nation's first communicator-in-chief, and it was fortuitous that that happened because anything less, anything less daring in concept or masterful in execution might have doomed the nation and preserved slavery. And if newspapers, as they often say, are the first draft of history, it's no wonder that Lincoln has dominated the second, third, and practically final drafts as well. No president was ever a greater writer, to be sure. But if his words had only been limited to the onlookers at Cooper Union or at Gettysburg, they would neither have reverberated in the public mind nor echoed in history. It's not only the message, it's the medium. I'm not the original person to conceive of that idea, as you know. So while he would conceive of a new birth of freedom and help execute it, he got to share the idea with the public and sell it through a new era of high-tech communications harnessed by a president who mastered and manipulated the media with extraordinary efficiency. Now, it's true that when dealing with the press, Lincoln did not always manifest his own credo of malice toward none. But he found a way to torture this, uh, these comparisons to speak to the people while positioning himself of the people. We may not remember him primarily as a communicator-in-chief because he was too smart to let the strings show that he was pulling. But he would perish from the earth as a national hero and as the legend he did so much to create by mastering the communications and the communicators who first described him. Thank you. So thank you for these. I'll try to do as many as I can before 
Seven, oh, we have 10 minutes, okay. Um, did Lincoln study any great orators from history? And did he have any idols? Um, well, I guess his, the orator he admired the most was Daniel Webster, but I don't think he ever heard him. Um, he might have heard him in Washington, but Webster died so soon after Lincoln's arrival in Washington that I doubt it. His idol was Henry Clay the great compromiser. And he did like the way, I mean, he, Clay was not a, a dramatic orator. He didn't have Webster's voice. What Lincoln admired, and we see this in his eulogy of Clay, was his simple sentence construction, his clear logic. Those are the things he admired about Clay and in fact emulated himself. It has been reported that Lincoln suffered from melancholy and depression made acute by the death of his son. If depression can inspire genius and tenacity, did this quality make him a better leader and president? It's beautifully phrased. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I don't, I'm not qualified to say whether he suffered from clinical depression. And I've gotten into trouble um, by saying once in the Washington Post that had he been clinically depressed, he could not have functioned at such a high level. And I got dozens and dozens of emails from people who are depressed and say they function at a high level. So, and I, you know, I accept that I was wrong, but they have medication and counseling that was not available. So I think he had a tendency to melancholy. And, you know, he lost his mother. He lost his sister in childbirth. He lost not one, but two sons. And I don't know whether it made him a greater leader, but it made him a more compassionate person, to be sure. You mentioned his skill at silence, but wasn't his storytelling ability, like Clinton's, a significant component of what made him a great communicator? Yes, that's a really good point. I'm going to keep this and add it to performance number two of, the, of this talk if the opportunity arises. Yeah, that's a really good point. And... People knew that he was a storyteller, and his, his jokes were often the butt of ridicule, so they did get him into trouble because it wasn't considered dignified by all people to have a president who was also a storyteller. But when, during the 1864 campaign, a brochure was published called President Lincoln's Favorite Stories, I think that that did humanize him further. And to people who complained that he shouldn't be joking. Um, he explained, as he once said to that doer Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, if I did not laugh, I would die. And Stanton never again questioned um, his need for laughter and humor. It's all part of the package. It's a sincere part of the package. Do Lincoln and Washington stand out from other presidents in core values respect, et cetera, and are there other presidents you would include in this group? Um, yeah, I mean, the founder and preserver of the Union were consecrated together as twin icons as soon as Lincoln died. Images were made saying the savior, the founder and the savior, the, uh, the originator and the defender, and they were twinned as never, as no president had ever been compared to Washington in life. So I'm, in my mind, the third member of the Trinity is Franklin D. Roosevelt. And I say that not because I devote my professional life to Roosevelt House now, but because he's 
guided America through not one but two crises that might have destroyed the country, the Depression and the war, and um, I think deserves to be ranked in the same group. And unlike Washington, more like Lincoln, was a great communicator. Um, and again, found the technologies to make that communication possible. I work in a house from which FDR gave his first fireside chat. Doesn't count in the list because he wasn't president. It was his home fireplace, so I guess that's a different category. And I've read the editorial reaction to this first communication to the people. All that he said is to be calm. And people were petrified, of course, in November 1932. And he was attacked um, as ardently as President Trump is attacked for using Twitter. I just think it's a, it's a lesson that these presidents who use technology to communicate are on to something um, brilliant. When was it and how was it known that Lincoln made up fake news and why didn't it hurt him? Because, and this is like our television viewing today, for those of you who watch MSNBC, I'll bet you don't watch Fox. And for those of you who watch Fox, I'll wager you don't watch MSNBC. In, 18, in the 1860s, Republicans read the New York Times and the New York Tribune in New York. Democrats read the New York World, or if they were a little more progressive and pro-union, the New York Herald. You were used to the Democratic paper saying everything negative about Lincoln that they could summon. Fake news was just part of it. He was also um, you know, accused of slaughter, of being uh, inhumane, of violating the Constitution, of creating race wars. Fake news was just part of it. And the Republican press endorsed the fake news and went with it and defended it. So again, there was no crossover. As I say, newspapers expanded, made, brought people together and drove them apart. Um, what members of Lincoln's administration most helped him in developing a strategy to use the press to his advantage? It's really extraordinary. The answer is none. The, the one person, well, really two in his secretarial staff. By the way, the, I'm reminded, the West Wing now has a staff of about 500 people who just do the press 24-7, responding on Twitter, Facebook. And this is not new to President Trump. President Obama is the one who expanded this office to such a huge degree. Abraham Lincoln had three private secretaries, one of whom was considered so excessive he had to hire him on the Interior Department payroll. One was sort of a chief of staff, his John Kelly. The other two, John Hay was, uh, and Nicolay had been a reporter. Hay was, a, was a, a, a lawyer. And he, Hay was a quasi-press secretary. He wrote reports under the name Agate. Nobody used their real name because you couldn't say you were Lincoln's secretary and wrote pro-administration reports for newspapers in New York, Providence, and Philadelphia. And then there was another newspaper man who was a secretary named William Osborne Stoddard who also wrote anonymous editorials. But Lincoln didn't share the strategy with other members of the cabinet. This is something his office did and mostly, and mostly Lincoln did himself. And follow-up question... Conveniently, did Lincoln have speechwriters? What kind of training would they have had? Well, I don't know what training they had because he had no speechwriters. He wrote everything himself. The one great piece of writing that's in dispute 
his famous condolence letter to a Rhode Island, to a Boston widow who had allegedly lost five sons in the military was either written by Lincoln himself or by the aforementioned John Hay, who was the only person that was um, empowered to write in his behalf. Um, is it true that Lincoln's bodyguard, oh, here's a little bit of field of communications, that Lincoln's bodyguard at Ford's Theater left his seat to go downstairs to see the show, le- leaving the president unguarded? That would have required very little communication, like don't go. But he, he didn't leave. Uh, one person left, one person stayed. In fact, John Wilkes Booth presented his calling card at the door to the guard. And it's like Brad Pitt presenting his card at the door. He was a really famous actor. And the guard said, step right in. So one guard did leave, but another was. And that's the last question. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.